All right, today on the Button Up Podcast, we have Robert Ordway from the Men's Insights, President and CEO of the Multinational Men's Insights site. How are you today, Robert? Uh, doing great, John. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we got connected through Menfluential. I know you knew Brock through um, what used to be StyleCon, but it uh, looks like you have a pretty fascinating background. I watched your TED Talk today, and uh, I always like to trace the I always like to trace the dots looking backward as to how you got to where you are today, and then we can look a little bit forward. So I know you're a DC guy, but maybe we can start out with some of your earlier days. Yeah. Well, interesting enough, I was actually born in um, uh, Portsmouth, Virginia, but I've spent uh, the majority of my life in Northwest Indiana, about a half an hour away from Chicago. And it's interesting because Northwest Indiana is kind of this um, offshoot of the city. So when people think of it, it it's like uh, a big town. But the reality is it's the National Dunes Lakeshore. And it's, it's steel mills. It's rustic. It's very industrial Midwest type rust belt. And so my childhood was very blue collar. Uh, my dad was a hunter and a fisher as well. So uh, growing up, you know, academics and books and things of that nature uh, not to mention, you know, men's dressing up was uh, definitely a, a, a wasn't utilized at all. Um, whereas I think some of the more traditional values of manliness and leadership, and I think a culture of honor, was kind of really prevalent uh, in my family, having roots in Kentucky. So it's interesting to move to D.C. and be part of a, what some people call the East Coast elites, and uh, you know, being in a new subculture where. Folks are very professionally motivated, and uh, they I think they work a little bit too much. But I'd say as a, as a central time guy, these East Coast folks, they like to wake up late, and they also love to stay up late. So that's been, a, that's been the, the biggest challenge for me in the last year and a half, two years, is you know, knowing how to uh, sleep in and then stay up till 2 a.m. So I'm a, I think I got more of a farm uh, mindset where it's get up at 4.30 and in bed by 10, so... I'm with you on the farm mindset for sure. But uh, what took you from Central to D.C. then? Well, you know, my background has really kind of been a three-legged stool from, uh, I was a, I call myself a child of the recession. So as a, the first kid in my family to attend college, I was very fortunate to receive the prestigious Eli Lilly Endowment, which is a full ride to anywhere in the state of Indiana. And that took me to Purdue originally, and then ultimately back to Valparaiso University, a small uh, liberal arts college. But as the war in Iraq started in 2003, uh, I was a DEP, it's called Delay Entry Program, for the United States Navy. And when I got that full ride, it was essentially, well, I guess I don't really need the military anymore, per se. And I had all kinds of signing bonuses lined up, and I ended up going to college. But I sort of picked the wrong major. I picked finance because I had a fascination with how the economy works. And graduating in 2007, in December, that was pretty much right when the, uh, the tail of the economy fell out. So I found myself completely unemployable in 2008. And I fell into politics by way of financial policy. And uh, essentially, since the past decade has been kind of the, this, again, I call it the three-legged stool, where I've worked in government at the city, county, and state level. I have worked in the financial sector uh, in, in insurance, in financial services, uh, and then my other part is probably more campaigning uh, in running, running elections for myself as well as for other people from low level to all the way to the national level. And so this menswear thing has always kind of been this little thing that's loomed around in the background 
for about 10 years. And uh, after recently having owned a mentor retailer, I decided to move out to DC uh, to go back into the political foray, seeing as there are a lot of opportunities out here right now. How did you first get interested in menswear and style or that whole world if you know, it wasn't necessarily something that was handed down from your dad or your family? Yeah, that's it's really interesting. So growing up, you know, if you go back to you know Tanner Guzzi and he talks about the archetypes, and I completely buy into uh, his mindset, his philosophy and views as written in the uh, the appearance of power. You know, my dad, I would probably would have considered him uh, an alpha male of some sort. Uh, steelworkers tend to be definitely more masculine and dominant than most. But growing up, you know, most of my clothes were purchased from Walmart and my hunting clothes that my dad bought were either from the Salvation Army or from friends of friends. And they were oftentimes four times too big. And I was told that I would, quote unquote, grow into them, which never happened. So at an early age, I went to the mall and I had this interest in clothing, but I didn't know what to do with it. And I obviously, being from the working class, couldn't afford anything at the mall. And this is at the time when Jinko jeans and, you know, mid-late 90s are coming about, rock stars and all that. And obviously, I wanted to be like my favorite X Games superhero, Dave Mira, and those types of folks. But when I went to college as an engineering major originally, and then I pivoted to finance, I immediately was told, hey, you need to learn how to tie a tie. Well, my dad passed away when I was 18 years old. And when, um, when we buried him, he didn't even have a dress shirt. Uh, his idea of dressing up for a family function at Thanksgiving or Christmas was uh, wearing a Dale Earnhardt crisply new black t-shirt, uh, you know, that cost about $40 back then. And so I found myself in this unique position where I needed to do something but had zero training. And so it was about 2006, 2007 when I picked up GQ and Esquire magazines, but I really found them to be unhelpful. And I don't mean to speak uh, ill of any you know publication, but you know, when it's a Dolce and Gabbana, you know, sport coat for 2,500 bucks and, you know, you need to be pretty trim and six foot four to wear it. I just didn't, I felt even more lost from the information that they were providing. And so it really wasn't until uh, the end of my undergrad days when I came across the book Dressing the Man through a Google search and then all the math and science in my left brain, uh, it, it all just came together and it all made sense. And lo and behold, about a year later, I'm in Brooks Brothers uh, shopping. And while I was helping customers, because there were lots of men in there struggling, the manager came up to me and said, how did you know that the button-down polo collar came out in 1896 by us? And I said, well, I read the book Dressing the Man and Generations of Style. And she goes, when can you start? And I said, well, I don't never really thought about working in retail. She goes, well, you get 60% off. And I said, when do I start? So that was really the segue into a seasonal position back when I was in grad school studying policy. And from there, it's been something where I've helped friends, helped family. And it's, uh, I think it's because it's, it's the opposite of my childhood and nature uh, to be white collar, to wear a tie, that I find it to be inherently seductive, I guess. That's really interesting. And you, and you do seem to at least, well, maybe we only hang out in, you know, more formal environments, but you do seem to like dressing up a little bit compared to, I'd say the average older millennial. Yeah. Well, I think from what I learned is in dressing well, doesn't necessarily mean dressing up. And I always tell uh, people, specifically men, young men, that you want to dress one level better 
from everybody else, and maybe that is up. But you don't want to uh, peacock too much or, as I always say, you don't wear a tuxedo to your two-year-old niece's birthday party, right? I mean, there's a, there's a misalignment there. But if you're wearing that lapel flower or you've got that fun pocket square uh, or that old pocket watch that hangs out from your, your vest, those are the little details that uh, people, uh, particularly women for sure, take notice in. And what I find, I'd say one of my biggest struggles since then is in the D.C. world, I'll meet several people at a happy hour or what have you. And later on, you know, weeks or months later, people come up to me, hey, Robert, how's it going? And I have absolutely no idea who they are, but they remember me because of the hmm. way that I dress. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder if you could, uh, transitioning a little bit, but I wonder if you could tell us about your time uh, running the menswear boutique, Rusted Oak, how you got into that and, you know, how it went. Yeah. So I was working in county government. I had a, I was in, what was I doing? I was in sales, I believe at the time. And the clothing store that was in my community for about 30 years was getting ready to close up shop. And the mayor came to me because he was personal friends with the owner and said, Hey, Robert, you know, you know, you've always wanted to be more of an entrepreneur and, and the mayor is my, uh, I consider him a, a religious a business and a political mentor and on many levels, amazing human being and, you know, trust his, uh, insights and guidance and what have you. And he goes, you know, you may want to go talk to the owner and see if he's interested in maybe transitioning, you know, again, if this is something you want. And I immediately was like, oh, this would be great. So I talked to the owner and like any entrepreneur, you want your blood, sweat and tears out of the business and cash yesterday. And unfortunately, in the retail world, it just doesn't work like that. Uh, you know, how much of the merchandise is stale, uh, has been sitting around, hard to sell, maybe not trendy or what, what have you. So what I ended up doing is... Uh, I talked to a lot of people and I said, this is something I, I'd like to pursue and would be interested if uh, I needed some partners because I had some capital, but I didn't have the, the full lot because uh, the inventory is a, a major lift to be able to purchase. And menswear only makes about Keystone, which is essentially double your money from a gross margin standpoint. So that means that, you know, if you buy for 50 cents, you sell for a dollar, but then you got to back out, you know, your visa fees, your, you know, your shipping, your package, and all these other things. And you find out that you really don't make that much money. But essentially, I wrote out a business plan. It was about 60 pages deep. I refined it over the course of a year. I went to a few friends as uh, silent investors, and I put together the concept. I found a marketing firm that I knew, like, and trusted. I explained my vision to them, and they were able to create the, the concept. So I came up with the name Rusted Oak, and everyone seems to think that it was based on my initials, Robert Ordway. That is not the case, but our logo kind of looked like a monogram, so it was fitting. But taking it from an idea to reality is uh, probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And to be able to go to market, to deal with 300 vendors, trying to understand what your market is, is by far the most difficult if you don't have a pre-existing business. So the buyer of the other store ended up going and working for a competitor about 15 miles down the road, and he had 40 years of buying experience, so he had a fingertip feel for what the market was. And what you learn in retail or menswear, whatever it may be, is that you don't dictate your market, your market dictates you. And so I took a lot of input and feedback from the community, but just like in political polling, a sample set of 30 or 300 may not really be relevant to the overall atmosphere so 
I tried to be all things to all people in about 1,300 square feet, and that was kind of not the right approach. And the challenge is my community was really the, the, biggest, the biggest challenge of it because I had all races, religions, cultures, creeds, uh, age, age groups, um, you know, conservative, liberal, uh, tall, short, skinny, not so skinny. And so there was an eclectic demographic, but it was also somewhat rural. So the whole county only had about 150,000 people and we're about an hour away from Chicago and New Yorkers would fly in and see my store and they're like, Robert, this is the most beautiful store we've been in. What the heck are you doing in Indiana? This should be in Dallas or Austin. And lo and behold, when I made a trip uh, to Dallas to see family a few years ago, I ran into a store called Q Clothia Rye 51. And I kid you not, it was identical to my concept and brand. So I guess the short story long was understanding retail, going to market, knowing what to buy, who you're buying it for, you know, being able to get the margins right, being able to turn the inventory. So as the seasons go out, you've got to be able to get rid of this stuff, mark it down, maybe take losses on it, maybe write it off and give it away to a thrift, you know, two or three hours away from your store. Um, but it is a major, it's a major task to try to do sales, marketing, operations, you know, doing tuxedos for graduations, doing wedding parties. And so, so I would consider it, I was probably working about 100, 120 hours a week, and I kind of lived at the store for the most part. It, is, uh, it has been the most life-changing experience for me. Um, I ended up shutting it down because of the revenues versus the margins versus my happiness was out of line. But I, w I don't regret it for a minute, and I truly believe that it is really given me a, a deep level of respect for people who are in and around the retail game, like restauranters or, you know, any sort of retail where you're dealing with customers and product and volume. So, hmm. and did, did you, how, how long did you do that for? Um, I had it open for about a year and a half. Okay. And would you ever consider something like that again, or would you take a totally different approach? I think looking at the way a young man here who is in his sixties owns a women's boutique, uh, here in Crystal City, and I met him in the locker room at the gym, and I, I said, hey, you got a nice shirt and tie. And he goes, oh, that's great. I'm like, I used to own a clothing store. He goes, I do own a clothing store. And he asked me when I owned it. I said, 2015 and 16. He goes, I've been in the business 45 years, and you probably couldn't have been in the industry starting at a worse period of time in life. And I was like, well, that makes me feel better, right? And he explained the, the challenges in the women's wear and when I look at it in retrospect, how Amazon and millennials now are now the largest you know, working group in America, largest voting base, now having children, you know, student debt, you know, we, cons we communicate differently, we consume differently. Everything needs to be driven around experience. And I tried to do that in the store, but I had challenges with like the government when I wanted to do like whiskey tastings and things of that nature. So I wouldn't do a straight retailer ever again, but I do believe that um, pop-ups or showrooms are the way of the future. I don't think that you can eliminate brick and mortar entirely. Um, I, I think the, the strategy is to be Amazon, start in digital and go brick and mortar as opposed to the Walmart model, which is brick and mortar and trying to go digital. Because when you have the data like Amazon does, when you open your brick and mortar, you already have reams of data on exactly what every person purchases, not only through you, but through your affiliates. 
and you can either backdoor them with your own product like Costco does with their Kirkland brand, or you can source exactly what people are interested in and you can experiment with very little risk. Whereas when I opened my store, I opened up and really, to be honest, didn't know what would happen. And when you look at the cost of goods of menswear, there really isn't a lot of margin to go with. And I see the future of the industry being private label or more niche brands. And the proof in the pudding in that, even at the lower level, is both Walmart and Target have decided that they were going to start their own men's lines so that they can create more margin from themselves instead of selling someone else's else's identity. Yeah, it makes sense. And uh, you see, uh, like with Target, with Goodfellow, it seems to be doing really well. Like it's it's gotten really popular, and because uh, it's they're still, I mean, it's not like high quality clothing, but it's on trend, you know, and it's kind of universally flattering for most guys, and it's super super affordable for so it, even though it's not high quality, it's valuable, you know. Um, so yeah, I, I I agree that definitely definitely the future. The disruptors allow, I think at the end of the day, the disruptors like an Amazon, I don't think they'll take over the world per se. I think there's a lot of different niche markets. And to be honest, some of the independent menswear stores are doing better than ever because of that crave for a personal relationship or, you know, a clothier for many men historically has fallen underneath the role of, you know, who are the most five important other men in my life? It's, you know, it's my pastor, uh, you know, my lawyer, my doctor, my accountant. And, you know, your clothier was like essentially number five. It was a person that you knew for years and you, you introduced your son to. And so there's something to be said for building the personal relationships, especially in the custom clothing world. But where the customer is really going to win today is as folks uh, understand the supply chain around the world in manufacturing, it will allow more private labels uh, to sprout up. But what that does is it lowers the cost. So let's just use Walmart, uh, for instance, or let's use Nordstrom. So just trying to think of a brand that's over there, um, Brack's Feel Good. They're a newer pant that's out. But let's say that Nordstrom buys for 50 cents and they try to sell for a dollar. If I go to the manufacturer that's making that pant and um, I say, you know what, I don't want to do Brack's, for instance, and I don't want to buy from them for $50 in Robert's clothing store, I'd like to create Robert's brand, right? And they say, okay, well, our cost is 30 bucks. Well, I spend $30 on that pant, and now I can get, if I want to get Keystone, I'd retail it for what, 60? Well, let's say I want to do, you know, three times, I can retail it for 90, so I'm selling it for less than my competitor, you know, and it's the same quality. So at the end of the day, the retailer or the brand is going to get more in their bottom line. I think a good example of this would be Thursday Boot Company or, um, Who's that other uh, boot company? Gosh, they're always on my website. Um, or Taft. On my, t- yeah, Taft, right? So those companies are able to offer you essentially a $600 boot for half the cost. They get to put more money in their pocket. You get a much better product. I think it's a win-win. And to be honest, you know, I'm much like a, uh, I'm a Raphael guy. I've always been a man of, uh, you know, high quality, low quantity. So I like to own a very few good things as opposed to a, a ton of disposable things. So I see the menswear industry uh, getting better and better for, for everybody. Um, and I think folks like you that have an audience uh, have a real big opportunity to, to capitalize in, in different ways. That's something that I slowly realized as you look at the brands that come out and say, we're cutting out the middleman. It's like you were, the middleman is getting cut out. And I think that ends up being a huge loss because I now see a store like yours. I'm looking at the 
uh, site online here, and it does look like a gorgeous store. I could see myself going to a store to hang out, like you're saying, a whiskey tasting and something. And, and so, it, you know, the timing thing aside, I think you had the concept. It was just a little bit – you were, like, right in that too early, too late phase. But, uh, yeah, that's a gorgeous store. Sure. I think what's really key for the future of showrooms is, again, men are uh, – this will sound not politically correct, but men are simple creatures – and have been for a very long time. And uh, women tend to prefer to farm their clothing. So they will go to multiple stores to grab different pieces and they don't look at the mannequins. They're very individualistic and creative. Men historically tend to go in there, point at the mannequin, grunt like a caveman and like, I want that and be done with it. They don't want to necessarily experiment or, you know, they just want the answers. You know, I want to cheat on this test and let's be done with it. But so there's even though there's an interest of more younger men in more androgynous approach, they still want the customer service experience, especially from a professional. And again, this is why people uh, go to your websites because they're looking for that knowledge base. But the reality is that there's something about the way of men, and maybe this ties back into maybe Ryan Mickler, but men inherently are still kind of tribal. So when you have that whiskey bar or in, maybe in the background you have a few of your artist buddies you know, doing an event, I mean, events are what young people live for. It's going to be the experience. You know, Starbucks started to do that, but I have friends in Chicago who run a penthouse next to the Board of Trade, and they do events with, like, magic shows. And for 50 bucks, you're getting a hand-rolled cigar that you get to smoke outside in the balcony. You get, you know, uh, McClellan, you know, 15-year, you know, scotch, and, you know, they're auctioning off paintings and are going to donate some money to some, you know, do-good charity for poor children. And so... You know, and it brings together also unlikely um, tribal groups, maybe politically, maybe racially, whatever it would look like. But the uh, having a meeting place beyond a WeWork, there's a lot of value for that in the future of menswear. And that company down in Dallas, Rye 51, you know, they kind of are trying to build out that footprint. But I would say most men that I know that are in the custom clothing quasi-retail space, they're only able to do one store. So it is a little bit scalable. Uh, or it's hard to scale unless you can truly find people that are one you can trust and two are willing to have that entrepreneurial mindset. And and to be honest, it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, I was I was just talking to uh, Jeff, the uh, CEO of Peter Manning, about this, like the whole idea of going digital first and then having a some sort of physical presence, but but really keeping it uh, under control. Because I I think when you see brands that kind of blow out the showroom experience like Bonobos or Warby Parker, it's so hard to control your brand when you have 75 showrooms in different states and countries. You know, one one bad employee or one kind of uh, underwhelming location or maybe the decor is not right or or maybe you walk into a, a Bonobos and there's nobody in there, you know, and it's just, it's not what she thought it was going to be. Um, versus if you have like a really slick online presence and then you know, one or two very well done showrooms that really represent your brand well. They match up with your online presence. That seems to be the way to go. No doubt. And, you know, looking at franchises is a good example. Um, I would use the Catholic Church as a very successful franchise in terms of they have a unified ideology, but at the end of the day, the decisions uh, for each sermon, right, uh, are made at the local level. And that's how McDonald's operates. Uh, you'll see like Buffalo Wow Wings, they'll have different uh, 
sports pictures, depending on the location, right? You're not going to put Green Bay Packers down in Chicago Bears land, right? And so in the men's clothing space, I see the same thing where you want to have the consistency, but just like politics, it's all local and you want it to have that cultural feel. And that's something that's fairly difficult to pull off uh, as a, a CEO who's from a certain place who, again, we all have our own kind of biases that we were born, raised, and even educated with. So, you know, when you do pick out those brick and mortar locations, one, as my mentor always said, uh, his dad started a, a retailer back in the day and was essentially put out of business by Walmart. He said, Robert, understand how much it costs you to turn that key every day. And that's something that digital people tend not to have to think about is, okay, well, I have an employee in here. Okay, well, I pay their FICA tax up to X amount of dollars. I pay for workers' comp. Um, for, you know, and that's a fee, you know, so before they even work a day, you know, an hour in their life, you already have an investment. Okay, what's the heating, the air conditioning? What is the insurance on the inventory and the space? What is the build out cost? And when people go into that brick and mortar space, they have to be very cautious of, you know, is this branding, is this identity creating an ROI or is it needed just to create the pomp and circumstance, which, you know, most brands tend to have to have a, or at least they think so, a brick and mortar in you know New York and Manhattan to be like, hey, we've made it. We're able to spend zillions of dollars on rent, so that must mean that you know it's kind of a fake it till you make it kind of um, mentality. But you know, being being frugal, I think from an entrepreneurial standpoint, is so critical uh, when venturing out into those those uh, those brick and mortar uh, locations. Yeah, I agree. So. What did you do immediately after closing down uh, the shop and what? So I've been spending, you know, I would say, you know, life is lived in forward, but analyzed in reverse. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, entrepreneurship, what I did right with the store, what I did wrong. And, you know, again, you only learn from your failures. You don't learn from success because success could be pure luck uh, in life. And, when I moved out to DC, I knew that I needed to uh, make money, uh, have a career, and figure out what is the shortest path to going back to becoming an entrepreneur. And that's really what goes through my head every day is how do I get back to being able to throw money at an idea and living a passion and a dream in and around the menswear space. So I knew right away that I wasn't going to do anything local in Northwest Indiana based on my skill set and background. So, you know, with a changing regime in, in DC, I had a lot of contacts out here. So it, it led itself to kind of the path of least resistance, like an electron, right? And I moved out here, one, because I'm younger, I'm single. This is, you know, one of the probably most motivated, ambitious places on earth, um, maybe a little bit too much in some cases, but at the end of the day, we all pick our friends and our jobs, and we surround ourselves with the average right of the five people we're, we're around. So uh, DC has allowed me to uh, see our politics from a different perspective, see cultures, uh, religions. Uh, it's been really great. And I work on the periphery of the political sphere. So I'm, I've got a leg into it, but I'm not like working for Congress or the president or someone who kind of sleeps, eats, and breathes it every day. But what's really neat is that because DC is gentrifying so much, uh, the 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 city as well as kind of you know Nova in Nova and then Maryland, the menswear place is kind of exploding here. It's always been kind of an untapped market, but remember 
this is a place where nobody's wearing a polo on Capitol Hill. I mean, you have to wear a tie. It doesn't matter if you're a nonprofit organization, a think tanker, a, you know, whatever walk of life you come from, you're going to wear a tie. And so with all this money that's moving in, I personally don't know where it's coming from, but it's, uh, it's a swell of opportunity in the menswear space to be around a diverse group of people, which I find to be fun, but to see how I can carve out a niche market in that space. So the goal right now is to work, you know, in government slash politics slash policy, whatever that, you know, space looks like, but continue to work on Capitol Hill Clothiers on the side, which is a little custom clothing brand that I cooked up, as well as working on Men's Insights. So the clothing is very localized, but Men's Insights is very generic and very, uh, national or very unbranded, I guess you could say. But my gut tells me that I should focus more on the local because to me, the the space of the menfluential folks is somewhat limited and you got to really figure out how you're going to carve out your niche. So for instance, for you, right, the, the men of modest height, that's a great niche to be in that you you started from ground zero. But, you know, to, to do another men's branding you, you gotta you gotta be I think first in the space or you need to be willing to commit a lot of time and energy for a long time before you really see an ROI. So for instance, if I were to copy Aaron Marino or Art of Manliness, I mean these guys have a decade in the game, both of them as of this year. So it's gonna take a year just to track on Google and imagine a lot of dollars just to get in that space. Not to deter anyone from doing it, but know that getting into it is um Rome wasn't built in the day, that's for sure. Yeah, you definitely have to find the, the differentiator for you. So are you working politically in the retail fashion space or you're focused on your clothing company? Because that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I I, I really have a interest in the, the private labeling. Uh, I don't really want to be in a manufacturing capacity right now. So I have a really good, what they call CMT, cut, make and trim shop, that does my custom clothing. And so I'm just really trying to build on that and take the money to continue to build out a personal brand in public speaking. I think what's really unique uh, about me, if that's even plausible, uh, is that I've done so many different things in life. And so it's hard when you're a jack of all trades and a master of none, it's hard to figure out what the heck to do. <laughs> so in the menswear space, I'm trying to use my foot in politics to dress up, to dress men better, to do more public speaking. For instance, this morning I got an email about uh, a gala that's going to be later this month, and a uh, organization reached out and said, you know, we'd love to send a blast email to all of our folks. Would you be willing to write a five to seven hundred word blog post on, you know, the do's and don'ts or what they should be wearing to this uh, black tie affair? And it was, you know, a very humbling uh, ask, you know, and so I feel you know, a commitment and obligation to help other men, but it's great to be kind of in that political space because in DC, it's all about who you know, and it's about networking. And so if you dress one step better than everybody else, it's it's a lot easier to grow it as opposed to the old school direct sales method where, you know, you just pick up the phone and dial for dollars and strangers to meet with you. It's It's a little easier to build a brand because Everybody is inherently social, whether whether it's real or you know they're fake people here too. Um, so just trying to build money on that side, but I'd really love to support more brands at Menfluential. I don't see myself uh, being a short little Irish man. 
I don't see myself being the face of a brand per se, uh, like Brock, like Aaron, like Antonio. I see myself more as a number two who's able to maybe support those brands through uh, content creation, strategic marketing, things that would help them scale their business. You know, it's not anything that they can't do, but it's something that they should switch to the, what I call in the, the book, the e-myth. They want to work more on their business instead of in their business. And if I can help support any of those, those guys in that way, that I think that would be uh, my contribution to the industry. That sounds great. Well, we actually have some rapid fire questions that uh, just one or two word answers. Uh -oh. If you're oh. ready for that. All right, sure. Oxford's or Bro. Oh. Hey, what, what kind of gun you choose? What kind of gun? You <laughs> I don't. Well, we don't like to tell you about it before before we ask. Yeah. <laughs> that makes it fun. <laughs> All right, Oxford's or Brogues? Definitely Brogues. Morning shower or evening shower? Morning shower. Favorite Bond actor? Bond actor. Oh my goodness! Uh, I can't even think of his name. From the nineties. Nineties. Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Nice choice. Uh, cardio or lifting? Uh, definitely strength. Uh, starting strength. Starting strength. Chinos, jeans, or trousers? Uh, jeans. Ooh, and then the last book you read? Last book I read was Why Honor Matters. Very cool. So I, I might have taken you for a trousers guy. It's interesting. So you are falling into the trap that everybody else does, my Facebook persona, if you will, and I'm usually dressed up in a lot of different things, but never, never um, underestimate, remember my blue collar upbringing, when it comes to, I guess, manliness and rugged outdoors type stuff, I still love to go back to jeans, although they were, when I was growing up, if you, do, if you remember the Levi's hard jeans, the commercial was the jeans cutting it, they were treating them like a saw and they were cutting through wood. I hated jeans as a kid, but uh, I had fallen in love with them. But I see more and more entrepreneurs these days, especially in the Midwest, where they wear quality denim with a sport shirt and, um, and sport coat. And I wore, I wore a pair of denim when I was at Menflinch on the first day. I know. I think some of the new denim brands that are popping up are really exciting. These kind of DDC, smaller brands, some really cool stuff going on in there. Well, there's more and more handmade stuff out there. I think Japan and California are probably the bulk of the business. It was unfortunate to hear that White Oak in North Carolina was finally shutting down their um, shop. They were kind of the crown jewel for America's denim manufacturing. But, you know, there are there's only about a handful of manufacturers worldwide. And so like anything else, there's a lot of branding out there. But it's interesting to see that the stretch denim is really it's not dominating but it's growing extremely fast oh yeah even with like you know cone denim and uh kind of like higher quality denim that's marketed to you know, people who are into raw salvage even that has you know two percent elastane or i mean almost everything is stretched it seems like sure well coming back to retail the thing is is that the male body used to be you know let, let's dial it back 50 or 100 years ago in this country you know, white male, six foot, maybe blue collar, maybe white collar, but he only weighs 180 pounds. You know, he's a trim guy because it's, it's a different time. And so wearing the Brooks Brothers sack suit fit everybody. But now we have, um, we have the bell curve. We have the, the obese folks who have no butt and maybe all gut. Um, and then on the other end, I, I call it the millennial generation. 
you have guys for the first time, in, in my opinion, in American history that have a skinny waist, huge butt, hips, and thighs from all their uh, squats and deadlifts. And retail cannot create a pair of pants that fit men without them, to be honest, being shaped like women. I mean, if you've got a 28-inch waist and a you know, 38-inch hip, uh, it's not going to work. And so the only way to kind of resolve this as millennials seek uh, tighter-fitting garments is to add stretch. So it's sort of, a, in many ways, a, a natural progression. And so you see athleisure where uh, growing in many ways. And as a guy, think about it. We're all about function over fashion. And so if you have a, a sports shirt or a pair of jeans that, you know, you could – you know, go casual and dress up. I mean, that's just uh, helps you be more of a minimalist. Yeah, I like the trends. I, I think it's uh, it makes sense. You know, to kind of uh, cater to guys' desire to be comfortable. You know, uh, I'm I'm totally on board with that. I wish there were more options for the shorter man <laughs> in the athleisure space because that's uh, I think guys are still while a lot of guys are kind of on board with tailoring and fit these days. I think uh, it's still kind of weird to get anything that's not anything that's more casual tailored. I agree. And I think, you know, I'm a little bit taller than you and a little bit bigger build, but I find it interesting. And I think one of the challenges that our country is getting a little bit more um, overweight. And so the, you know, the retailers are making things big. I've, I've really enjoyed Brooks Brothers Red Fleece line, which has become more trim and uh, as opposed to the box that. But the reality is I wear a small in some clothing brands and an extra small, which, you know, 5'7", 165, I don't, I'm not exactly what I'd consider petite by any means. And so when it comes to cardigans or I'd say the hardest thing to find on earth is like a pair of joggers. If you're short and trim, there's no pair of joggers that aren't, you know, bunched up to your knees. So, and then they're hard to alter, right? I mean, if you find a beautiful hand-knit sweater and you go to a tailor and say, hey, I need three inches taken off the, uh, the sleeve, from my 31 inch arms, they're gonna laugh at you. That's hand knit. You can't, you can't just chop it off and restitch it. You know, so I uh, I feel you when it comes to more of the casual wear items and not being able to find the right size or fit, but also just the complete lack of ability to alter. Totally feel your pain. <laughs> All right, Robert. Well, looking forward to seeing how you grow your brand, and I think it's really cool to see some of the behind the scenes stuff as you're talking about, uh, you know, supporting maybe some bigger brands and that type of thing. So uh, people can connect with you on, is the best place maybe LinkedIn or uh, somewhere on Instagram? Yeah, I would say, yeah, I would say you know, robertordway.com, mensinsights.com. Uh, my handle on Instagram is still Rusted Oak. Uh, I still have a, I guess, a innate desire to somehow build out that brand in a different way going forward, but those are probably the best ways. Great. Well, looking forward to following that and then hopefully checking in with you maybe at Menflundrel next year. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me on the show, John. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Buttoned Up Podcast, a collaboration between John Shanahan of The Cavalier and Brock McGough of Modest Man. And we'll see you next week.